Welcome to the 12th episode of Who's Editing, a thought experiment in which my guest and I appoint ourselves editors of a comic book line at DC Comics. The joke's on us, though, because we can only use the characters of a specific issue of Who's Who, and in fact, must use them. And I'll let you in on all the rules, but first, let's welcome my guest with which to create a line of books based on Who's Who number 12. It's Martin Gray. Welcome to the show, Martin. Thanks for having me, Cisco, and I love the show. Uh, It's what a treat to be a part of it. Hopefully I can not bring down the standard too much. I'm the one that's in at risk <laughs> of, of dropping the... Because I'm, I'm doing so much, so many of these. I'm having more and more trouble coming up with concepts that I haven't, haven't already used. Um, you know, I don't want to repeat myself. Were there challenges for you? The, the biggest challenge was for me is, is it, this issue is full of characters that... <laughs> well, I don't think I've got... A, many favorite characters in here you know i love love volley west love joel but there's so many characters in there that like street fighters and you know variations on judo judo fighters and kung fu types there's a couple of cave boy types it's hmm. so sometimes it's like you know if, if they're all a bit similar try and connect them a little bit but hopefully not too much of that so i just went into it sort of just seeing seeing what's sparked off by the names. But I didn't want to go too far away from the original creations. Right. But there are a lot of non-superheroes, which is its own challenge if we're trying to think of, of some sort of fictional marketability. Especially the tail end of this issue is a lot of morts, a lot of concepts that aren't very commercial, let's say. So we had to, to do some work here, for sure. So one more time, here are the rules to each episode of Who's Editing. Our line of books must include a monthly series for every hero character or team featured. We can give a villain an entry, you know, their own series, if we absolutely feel the need to, but we can also only name just a single villain from the issue to receive that honor. Imagine we're coming back from some crisis or other so we can reboot characters or use any continuities version. It's really up to us. Titles don't have to match the entries. Note that we are each pitching our own ideas, so we'll sort of end up with two possible lines of books. Listeners, you decide which books you'd actually want to read from either one, and we'll actually play that game as well. We'll each have enough money at the end to buy one title from the other editor's line. I'll be taking notes. So tell me, Martin, before we get into it, did you have a strategy going into this? No, as not really. As with the original Who's Who, with all the characters set throughout DC history, I wanted to have the line of books where the char- you know where the characters could be set at any point in DC history, but. Because this issue was released in 1985, I've tried as far as possible to limit the uh, the ideas and characters used in concepts to things that went up to about 1985. I've tried not to go beyond 1985. I'll probably end up breaking my own rules because I'm only human, but you can call me out on that. I just miss the Bronze Age so much. I wanted to sort of you know, try and stay as far in the Bronze Age and beforehand as possible. I, that's probably a good choice for me. There are a couple of, I mean, there are a couple of themes the entries suggest. Like there's a relatively large number of Asian characters, or a lot of shadowy spy or crime types. It's hard not to connect them in some way, maybe. But I think my biggest achievement is that I, I I've achieved near parity between male and female headliners. I changed some characters' sexes, obviously, but I think in terms of headliners, it's like 11 to 10 in favor of women. It just so happened, just because I was making these choices. I wasn't doing it consciously, but I do like that that's what, what's happened in my line. So with issue 12 of Who's Who, we have to include a minimum of 19 books, that's a lot, in our line, and a maximum of 
20. Martin, I'm going to hand it off to you first, and we'll do a bit of back and forth in entry order, and we'll keep our bonus villain series, if we have one, for the end. So, th this doesn't start with a stellar uh, name brand hero, but we got to start in the beginning, and that beginning is Johnny Double. What did you have in mind? Well, Johnny Double, Bronze Age DC detective. I've got to say, who has a surname like Double? I would say, in my continuity, he was born Jonathan Dublinsky on the Golden Age Earth 2, where he was a henchman for JSA villain The Wizard. Caught in a battle with the JSA, he was blasted to Earth 1, the Bronze Age Earth 1, and he was shocked to find himself face to face with his doppelganger. Unfortunately, he instinctively shot and killed him. After giving his counterpart a decent burial, he stepped into his shoes and now he tries to make up for his terrible mistake. Putting his criminal skills to good use as a private eye in San Francisco, helping the little guy is a snappy named Johnny Double. All right. You know what? I did something similar. Uh, the double name is suspect. <laughs> I agree. I, I read this and I thought the text was quite evocative, uh, but the picture was not. And uh, it's interesting in the context of this issue that he was one of the people who fought Cobra in that series. But it's not that interesting. So, and the <laughs> Azarello reboot really didn't do anything for me either. So I, I didn't go there. I also wanted to do something with the double in the name. So in my case, some karmic event is responsible for Johnny being split in two. One is a private eye with uh, the worst luck in the world. He's a lovable loser. He's always flying by the seat of his pants. And the other is a crime lord with the best luck in the world. He's rich, he's corrupt, he's untouchable. But their lives are intertwined. Well, I mean, they have the same past. At some point, they double, they, you know, they split up. So they have that same past, including the woman they both pine for and uh, the buddy on the police force. So the bad Johnny really wants to kill the good Johnny while good Johnny wants to take down his double because he's screwing up his life. People don't know there are two Johnny double, well, two double, you know, double Johnny. So uh, obviously the name double at the end is, is a, would be a pseudonym, but uh, I went and split them up and did not kill the doppelganger, I guess, is, is, is my twist on it. Very, very nice. That's very interesting. That's great. Love it. Let's talk about Jor-El. The only thing I really liked about the Man of Steel movie was the Jor-El action hero sequence at the beginning. So that's kind of what I'm proposing. Uh, Jor-El, pre-marriage, a rebel to his culture, uncovering the conspiracy, hiding the fact that, you know, the planet's dying, there would be like a cover-up. Uh, he's sticking criminals in the Phantom Zone. Uh, he's daring to have a physical relationship with a girl when everybody else has gone the way of clone banks. We're years away from his being Kal-El's dad, and we're really filling in his background using all the cool stuff from Krypton, like Rondors, and, you know, he's got a cousin moving to Astro City, all of that. And to make sure you get that vibe, this is what I'm doing with Action Comics. It's going to be Action Comics starring Jor-El, the first Superman. Ah, my Jor-El's an earlier Jor-El. You know, again, it's the, the Bronze Age, Silver Age chap. What was he like in the years before he became Krypton's greatest scientist? I'd give him a just testing with a three-issue miniseries, World of Krypton, and shows early years, struggles, triumphs, and how his personality differs from that of his famous son, because too often in the comics, he just seemed to be Kal-El in a headband so the hook would be though that we're firmly in silver and bronze age continuity and every five minutes he's being visited by 
people from the future of Earth One. His grown-up son, there to love romance, Lila Lowell, Jimmy Olsen, Batman, Lois Lane, Supergirl, the Legion, Crypto. He just cannot get on with his life. He's constantly being interrupted. But meanwhile, the core of the planet is ticking down to its doom. So over the course of three issues, we just saw a bit of a comedy with, with the fact he's always getting interrupted by these people because there were so many stories of the more Weisinger where that happened. It's a wonder that, you know, he got any rest. Yeah, the, the time travel, <laughs> uh, there was so much of it. That's an interesting take to, to, to look at it from his perspective. And I think there's a lot of humor and, and for fans, a lot of nostalgia to that, connecting the dots to those old stories. Okay, here's one of your challenges because uh, you you confessed to me beforehand that you know you're not into the kung fu genre and street level heroes that that kind of use martial arts is not your thing and there's a lot of it in this uh, issue of Husu. This is our first one, really. Judo Master. Was this hard? <laughs> According to Who's Who, the original Judo Master survived the Second World War, so I'd have him in the 1960s, a little beyond his best condition, but still well able to fight the good fight. Our hero, Rip Jagger, has opened a gym with his old all-star squadron pal, Wildcat, because, of course, any time there's a gym in the DC Universe, it's owned or worked by Wildcat, and there they pass on skills to young superheroes in training. His former sidekick, Tiger, has the local Japanese restaurant and has absolutely no interest in going back to the old days and fighting crime. But when a rival Doho opens up as a front for criminal gangs, Judo Master and Tiger don their fighting togs one last time. Okay, so they're like uh, middle-aged superheroes. Yeah, definitely, yeah. You know, they can they can still do it, but it's not as easy as it once was. Uh, like a Mike Grell, Green Arrow, Judo Master. There might be a little element of a next generation of Judo Master and Tiger coming in there at some point, but that would be along the line. Yeah, since they're running, a, he's running a school. For me, I mean, I have no problem with the Kung Fu characters or the, the, the martial artists because that is a genre I know well, you know, from film. Actually, my, uh, my film inspiration is a little bit different, but still from Asia. I'm a fan of post-war Japanese cinema. So in, in the post-war era there are a lot of you know obviously there are samurai movies and all that sort of stuff but i think this would make a very intriguing setting post-war japan for a street level superhero so judo master sticks around after world war ii as part of the american military presence there uh, but he's keeping rowdy gis in check he's he's fighting the yakuza uh, and we the readers are witness to american fads cropping up in the culture so it's japanese noir really the the genre he gets a darker costume i think to make that work also the overall feeling is that even if he forged a bond with the japanese who taught him martial arts and according to the entry he's still a fish out of water and he's increasingly feeling that the u.s has no business being in japan so his loyalties are tested there are a lot of noir films coming out of japan in the 50s and 60s and that's that's the tone I'm going for. Sounds fascinating. I'd buy that. Yeah, keep your money. Maybe I've got a better a better idea for later. <laughs> and, right and, and I mean, are you going to buy a Judo Master series or are you going to buy a JLA series? Because uh, this is the big ticket item in the Who's Who book. Justice League of America. You know, many choices. I had to choose an era to model this tentpole book, really, after. So, I mean, I came in with the satellite era. Uh, truthfully, and I enjoyed the Bwahaha era and uh, the Morrison era even more. But my pick for a format is Justice League Unlimited, 
the animated series. Uh, Mr. Terrific and Oracle would basically be running the show and assigning various heroes to various missions. And the League is composed of dozens of heroes who fit the bill. So can Superman vouch for them and their ethics? Yes, then they're in. So each issue or arc has a different team lineup. We can do the roll call thing on the splash page as a tribute to the you know stories of the past. They're taking care of A-level threats. The ground crew is really the only absolutely recurring element. Uh, Michael Holt, Barbara Gordon, Dale Gunn, and Kilowog among them. So I've got you know I've got supporting characters from across the history of the Justice League. Well, yes, Justice League. You remember that time when, oh, no, that was just a society. Hang on, Justice League. What I'd do is I'd lean into the team's name, the Justice League of America, led by Uncle Sam. It would be patriotic heroes from anywhere in the multiverse. So we had the likes of Miss America, The Shield, The Force of July, Agent Liberty, General Glory, Liberty Bell. But we can also have Yankee Poodle and American Eagle from the zoo crew. Yeah, the problem is that patriotic heroes usually get to lead their teams, or very, very often do. And there are a lot of alpha leader types in here, so... How can they set the U.S. back on the right path when they can't even agree on who's in charge, never mind what the best version of America might be? So that would be my JLA. A thoughtful Freedom Fighters <laughs> hybrid with the JLA. You didn't go with the Justice League past. You really went a new future. Yeah, because the thing is, the Justice League you know, was, on the, was on the verge here of changing path anyway. Mm-hmm. So I'm allowing myself a little... A little tweak in another direction. I mean, I could have made it a, ju- a Justice League of judo masters, but because you know, as well as having you know many volumes of Justice League omnibus here, I've got I do have four volumes of Master of Kung Fu archives or whatever. So I'm not totally against the judo heroes. I just don't always know what to do with them. But yeah, Justice League. I'd for a while, for about a year, I'd make this the Justice League. Okay. Um. I mean, maybe the 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 more important book for you was just the Society of America. And that's up next. Well, remember that time when the JSA were forced to retire as costume crime fighters by the Committee on American Activities? And then, of course, years later, in the 60s, they reappeared as costume heroes in that world-spanning team-up with the Justice League. Question is, what happened in between in those sort of 10 years or so? Here's where we learn how the JSA became a true secret society, fighting crime without the colourful costumes until they made their triumphant return. We see weddings, children, how the criminals reacted, because, of course, the criminals aren't going to hang up their masks. Illegal is their business. And, Siskoid, if I'd heard the last episode prior to writing this, it wouldn't be so similar to your excellent Johnny Quick bitch. Sorry. Uh, <laughs> uh, no, no, that's not a problem. Obviously, I'm a big fan of the JSA characters, and um, I would be very interested in reading that particular book. It's the front runner right now. I had a similar interregnum idea, but I'm keeping it before the McCarthy hearings. Uh, they can be in costume, in other words. Uh, my book is a complete throwback to the old All-Star Comics stories. The society members meet, they split up, And each solo hero's chapter is written and drawn by a different creative team. Uh, So this is a comic I'm selling as a creator jam uh, on which your favorites are probably working. Name it. Who's your favorite writer and artist? Well, oh, perfect. Those are the people doing Dr. Fate or doing Hawkman in these stories or Johnny Thunder or whatever. So I'm sick of people having down on poor Johnny Thunder. I had fun writing a a pitch for his series in the the previous episode. Yeah. But you know what? I'm also a fan of Snapper Carr. So... Absolutely. So I, I see what you did with the title, All-Star Comics, All-Star Creative Team, All-Star Superheroes. That was subconscious. <laughs> From the two biggest teams of heroes 
the, you know, in DC Comics history, onto Callista. Yay, an Omega Man woman. Yay, hurrah. Yeah. Well, actually, I had the kind of idea you can only have with the comic open in front of you. Callista has broken off with Primus and the Omega Men. Calabac, he's on the facing page, has broken off with Darkseid. And somehow the two princelings end up together in a book called Calabac Loves Callista. And they are essentially <laughs> the anti-hero version of Mr. Miracle and Big Barda traveling the universe in search of adventure. Bonnie and Clyde meets Lobo meets the Thin Man. What does she see in him? Love brings out a certain nobility and a sweetness in him that we've never seen before. She's definitely the brains of the operation, but she likes that. And she never abuses her power over him. I want this to be, uh, and anything goes, but not at all toxic space adventure romance. To me, Callista was uh, very easy to, to do something with her, but that's because I was looking at Calabac. They have the same colors. You know, they kind of like both dressed in brown. Yeah, I just paired them up. Where did you go with it? Well, this is hard because I've never read any Callista stories apart from in when the Omega Men debuted in Green Lantern and in the Tom Taylor series, but that's way outside my remit. So I give the Queen of the Omega Men a special in which her hex magic goes berserk and sends her back in time to, where else? Krypton! And she crosses over into Jor-El's book. They have an adventure in the Scarlet Jungle with Firefalls and Jewel Mountains and Thought Beasts, all that silver-edged goodness, before she returns to her own time and place. But Jor-El never forgets her courage and heart, and her name sticks with him. Callista Kali Kal-El? <laughs> uh, Roy Thomas would be proud of you. <laughs> <laughs> Kalel, Kalista, Kalibak. There's something to that. Next up is Commandy, the last boy on Earth. Let's hear the pitch. Well, we've seen Commandy, last boy on Earth many times. But what happens when he grows up? Commandy, last man on Earth. Oh. That will be the book. Having encountered him in crisis events, Legion history buff Cosmic Boy wants to ensure that Commandy's great disaster future becomes the shining era of the Legion. Despite Rainey's protests that it's an alternate timeline, Rockfin takes a time bubble and goes back, sure that his 30th century knowledge can return man to a civilised state and determined to find Commandy a wife to restart the human race. Maybe a few wives, why waste time? How about a few wives from Karg, triple the number of babies at once? But the minute Rock steps out in his sexy micro-70s outfit, Commandy realises just who he wants. Cue buddy comedy adventure hijinks in Commandy and Cosmic Boy. <laughs> well, that'll teach Cosmic Boy to time travel so much to be a history buff. I like that. I, I like that a lot. I was uh, obviously influenced by the Only Living Boy and Girl comics because I want this to be called Last Girl on Earth. It's about Commandy's never-before-seen sister. We'll call her D, as, you know, she was born in the same bunker, so she's called D. Yeah. Same Kirby world after the Great Disaster and that map. That map haunts me. It's still full of places I don't think the comics ever went to or that are due for a modern touch-up. One thing the Commandy uh, stories over the years never really did was bring the characters and concepts up from the contemporary era. Uh, you know, Superman at World's End is just about the exception. But I would allow it. The heroes would be represented by lost artifacts, like, uh, you know, you find a Green Lantern ring or the Batcave or whatever, while villains with a measure of immortality might show up or you know, get themselves unfrozen or whatever. And at some point, and this is part of the, the, the larger arc to keep you reading, we'll find out just who caused 
the Great Disaster. Ooh. So is that an, an event that can be undone by a, a cosmic boy uh, crossing over from uh, another <laughs> a parallel reality where you're the editor? Who knows? It could be. Could be. Next up, oh, just the stars, the DC stars here. Kana, Secret Shadow Warrior is our next entry. I, I call the book Secret Shadow Warriors. It's a more grounded and more secret version of Checkmate, a group of agents who keep the world safe and on track having broken out of ancient assassin clans. In fact, their main enemy is the League of Assassins. The current leader of the clan is an older Kana, and his second-in-command is Ravan of Suicide Squad fame. However, we get to meet and develop a lot of different characters, in particular one young, fresh, elite squad of men and women from different countries and backgrounds who act as our entry into this world. There is every opportunity to tell stories from across history as a change of pace. I love books that do that, like Immortal Iron Fist. Or So, for example, it's definitely something I can see crossing over with my Judo Master series. So he would, he would meet the Secret Shadow Wars of that time, you know, for example. Kana, another martial arts character. I can't wait to see what you did with him. Yeah, but another martial arts character. But as, as I discovered, not just from Who's Who, but from your own blog of geekery, he, he has a superpower, so that can feed into things nicely and I, I do like your take with mine i'll have you know the world war ii ninja from gi combat back in a london set series in which he's winston churchill's bodyguard and he's so good at his job of being a ninja that he was a member of the all-star squadron without them ever knowing playing a big part in saving winnie from kung the assassin it would be a twilight maxi series that would see him teaming up with dc's greatest war characters always for good never for glory his first annual will see him use his established ability to travel into the future via meditation, which he could do, holy Professor Nichols' Batman, to look in on one of his descendants who's in big trouble, and we'll get to that soon. Oh, okay. So a, a character that has, has a series later on. And I, I like it when, you know, when we're not Americans on the show and we make sure to set a, a series in our own country. <laughs> so you did it here. I'm doing it later. In fact, I'm doing it very soon in a, in a couple of entries. Well, you had the big Jor-El series, full-on silver and bronze age into Jor-El. Kandor is an entry that we had to cover. We're covering, you know, we're doing series for non-HQ places. So Kandor, the bottled city, what did you have in mind? Is, does this have anything to do with Jor-El? Uh, it's pretty much the same continuity. I mean, I was thinking thinking around the houses, trying to think of, you know, different takes, dark takes on Kandor, different Kandors. But I'm such a mark. Like, I mean, I, I've, all the early stories I read of Superman were pretty much every other one was set in Kandor. And I just love Kandor. So and around the time this issue of Who's Who came out, the original Kandor had been destroyed. Its population restored to the proper size and living on the new world of Rockin. Well, the heck with that. My Kandor book is set smack bang in the Silver and Bronze Age and stars the likes of Superman's cousin Van Zee and his Earth Bride Sylvia, the Lois Lane lookalike. It would have the second flame bird Nightwing, members of the Superman Emergency Squad, and to point of view incomer, probably a teenage relative of Sylvia, who's come to live with him after their parents died. Behold the wonder of Kandor. Remember that teenage relative of Sylvia? She's also related to another Superman regular, Lex Luthor. It's his niece, Nostalgia, sent on a mission to destroy Kandor from within. Thing is, she finds that she rather likes the place and the people. Well, you're really, really going deep into the, into the lore. I had to reimagine it a bit more. I'm not as much of an expert on, on those stories. I, I want my series to take place 
after Candor is released from the bottle. The Kryptonians have made a deal with the United States to keep close tabs on the population in exchange for a parcel of land in Montana, maybe. Basically, Candorians can't leave willy-nilly, and there's a red sun simulator on top of the highest building to keep people from getting powers. Central to the series are Nightwing and Flamebird, uh, and I like the, the male-female duo they had in the new Krypton era where, you know, where Superman wasn't in his own books. Yeah. They're basically, there'd be the top level operatives of an internal agency that protects Kandor and its deal, uh, you know, with the outside world. Possible plots, criminals who escape Kandor and must be repatriated, uh, villains trying to blow the red sun, outsiders trying to use Kandor's science or political situation for their own benefit, and... Superman, guest starring in non-powered circumstances. So I think there's a lot to do with the city, whether it's in the bottle or outside it. I mean, you pointed out a few more, like the Superman Emergency Squad or, you know, all of that. There's enough world building that's been done with Kandor that I think you can expand it into a series. I think we've proven it. I think there's some brilliant ideas there. Karate Kid! I was promising a series that took place in my own country. This will be it. Well, here's my controversial statement. My favorite Karate Kid movie is The Next Karate Kid with Hilary Swank. Not because it's good, but because it's completely insane. So I guess that that's what inspired me to make my Karate Kid series about a teenage Japanese-Canadian girl protecting the streets of Vancouver with martial arts mastery. Every generation, someone is born with a zen-like connection to the universe who basically moves with it, not against it. So despite her age... She's basically the best martial artist on earth. Uh, just comes naturally. But as Valerie, reinterpreting the character here, <laughs> Valerie is young. The Shadow Warriors have yet to recruit her, but maybe they're thinking about it. Plenty of time for that because I'm giving her you know, a fun school life, a happy family that's a bit of a mix of traditional, like first generation immigrant and westernized culture. We're going for the same kind of appeal that, that Ms. Marvel Kamala Khan uh, has with this one. But this is my Canadian implant. <laughs> I'd love to read that. I mean, a Karate Kid's Hilary Swank. I've never seen a single Karate Kid movie because they're called Karate Kid and it's karate. But uh, Karate Kid, my least favourite Legionnaire. So, oh. <laughs> I know. Well, he's Karate Kid. Super Karate. One of the best uh, stories about him is him getting killed. So, I, I understand. Exactly. Yeah, I understand. So, did you keep it in the Legion time, or did you do like me and and set it in a contemporary era? No, 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 no. I'm, I'm keeping it in the Legion time. So, as entry points out, the Karate Kid is dead in Who's Who, but we know that he lived for a while on a world where magic and mediumship were not uncommon on Orlando, and so he picked up a trick or two. So, death doesn't stop Valarmor from being a hero, and he becomes a 30th century dead man. With super karate. His one wish is to be reunited with his wife, Jackie, but the goddess Ramakrishna, dead man's old pal, says that isn't possible until he's helped a certain number of souls. As ever, she's horribly woolly about the details. But knowing that Jackie's bound to be courted by any number of space princes, Val kicks against Rama's ruling, and off he goes on a series of adventures to try and win back her heart. For something, for a character that you do not care for, that is a great pitch. <laughs> I love it. Let's keep going with these uh, Asian and martial arts inspired heroes. Katana is next. Katana with no bananas. Well, 
I adore the original costume. She looks like she's the Queen of Hearts from a playing card or something, but I've never liked the character, not one bit. Because like Wolverine, she just gleefully slashes people. She runs around carrying a sword, not hitting people with the flash. She just slashes them. So, inspired by the old Batman and the Outsiders letter column, because, of course, not liking Katana, I read every issue, inspired by the letter column running joke about her carrying around critics' lungs in a bucket, I'm going to have her go mad. The evil souls in a sword drive her nuts, leading to an ongoing mature reader's book, because of course this is before Vertigo, and it will have the tone of the Moor beset Total Ben Swamp thing. Katana starts wholesale slaughtering people that she believes are villains, even though they're not necessarily villains, and she's dumping their bodily parts in a pail that she speaks to and sometimes carries into battle, sloshing around. But there's a mysterious figure hovering around her, fighting to redeem Tatsu's soul from the shadows who is it it's a grandfather kind of the shadow warrior ah, that makes sense traveling through time okay yeah okay that probably would be a very popular take if if it actually came out <laughs> post 1985 you know just in time for the 90s you know i know i've been very hard on the original outsiders but katana is probably the purest and best concept in the lot you know the one that's that most works as a solo character the problem yeah. for me is that every time I read a uh, you know katana in a book, she never slashed people. That was that was my problem. I, I know that later on she becomes a little more slashy, but originally, like in the Outsiders, she's not allowed to slash anyone, and she's slapping people with the blade. And it just felt like, what is this character doing in a team book in the early '80s, where she can't she uses a sword but can't use the sword? It's like just make it a, a cricket bat or something, because that's basically how she's allowed in a code approved book how she would be allowed to to play out you know because she didn't want to steal souls accidentally obviously that's supposed to be the story but we know probably you know the comics couldn't be gory in 1982 when when it started it's a good concept but just not one that is useful in that kind of series so big revamp for me tatsu yamashiro still runs dragon books like she did in the outsiders but it's what she does in the back room after hours that's interesting. She cuts herself with the sword uh, that she inherited from her ancestors, and it sends out her soul into a fantasy world based on feudal Japan, where Amethyst-like, she's the hero people have been crying out for to defeat an evil shogun. But also, what happens if the spirits get out into the real world and come knocking at her door at the store? So the vibe of the series is... Miyazaki movies like Spirited Away and Princess Mononoke, and the art would have to be worthy of that. That's my idea for the Soul Sword, which doesn't force you to massacre people in the streets of Gotham or whatever, but brings that mystical element in another way. That sounds absolutely fascinating. I would, yeah, that that's interesting. It's very interesting, of course. In my memory, she was slashing people, but you are, I'm sure, entirely correct in that she wasn't allowed to slash people in the code, but I think it's I'm perhaps influenced by all the all the solo katana strips I've read since then, where she does eviscerate people again. Because I keep giving the character a try, but uh, I think I like your take better than any of the takes I've read since then. Yes, I, I think there should be like warnings about you know cutting, uh, which I understand the character has you know there, there's a problematic element to it, but also that would be part of something that we would have to address in the series. That, yeah. you know, she's she's actually cutting herself and people would be around her would be worried about what was happening. And, and we don't want kids to imitate the, the conduct either. Okay, next up is Kid Devil. I unofficially 
call this Kid Devil Wears Prada. I think I'm a little <laughs> I, I, I think I'm a little inspired by the Cruella movie, the recent Cruella movie. Yeah. Uh, to be honest, because I'm introducing the new Kid Devil, an African American would be fashion designer who has a secret identity working for a high-level psychopathic fashion queen by day, but then steals her thunder at every turn with a mix of crime-fighting and cool, hell-inspired fashions by night. One of the fun aspects of the series is that Kid Devil doesn't appear in the same costume twice. Every outing is a fashion show uh, with utility accessories, of course. A complete redesign of this character. Did you go for the classic, or...? Oh, yes, the classic. Because I just, I'm a big, big fan of the Blue Devil series. I was a big fan of, of Edward Gopher Bloomberg. And I just don't think he got enough time in the sun. So when I mean, he's there, the costume's goofy. You know, they wouldn't like it at Prada. But don't be fooled, it's powerful. And he's got a lot of potential as a hero, but he never got to reach it before DC pulled the plug on his horse book, Blue Devil, and took all the fun out of Dan Cassidy's alter ego. Well, I'd say if Dan has to be an actual demon as he was transformed to in a terrible DC crossover, I'd say let Gopher be the hapless everyman in a high-tech suit that Dan originally was, inheriting the title of DC's most light-hearted superhero. I'd have him working at the Institute of Hypernormal Conflict Studies that was in Blue Devil, I believe. And Kid Devil just wants to have fun. He wanders around fighting villains. He affects an Irish accent the whole time because he misses Dan Cassidy and he just thinks it's funny to say, Kid Devil, all the time. His big aim, he wants to rescue Dan Cassidy from his new demonic form. But who's that over there plotting against Gopher? It's only Claire with a K, Claire the Warlock Girl. Why does she hate Kid Devil so much? <laughs> I like it because Blue Devil's moved on, and so there's room for that legacy hero to pop up. Yeah, well, we're in the kids now. We were doing kids. Kid Eternity was, uh, I think, the first one I unlocked for myself. But I want to see what, what you did first. This, this is one where I just haven't haven't deviated much at all because, I mean, you'll remember Grant Morrison's radical reinvention of the 40s quality character as an agent of chaos. Or I don't know whether you saw the new 52's coroner with the ability to resurrect the dead. It was in a single issue story. It wasn't bad, but I just think the original concept was so pure. I'm having none of that kind of thing. I would have an all-ages kid eternity and he, he will be the classic version with Mr. Keeper. The series mission statement will be similar to that of the original Doctor Who series. Teach kids about history while giving them a fun fantasy adventure. And hopefully it will be a keeper. But we need a twist. What if the last crisis had derailed the kid's route to limbo where he calls characters from? And he's pulling people not from Earth 1 history, but from places such as Earth 3 where everyone is evil. And the Bizarro world where everyone is bonkers. And yeah, I realise that the, the square Bizarro world should have no history prior to the early 60s when it was created by Bizarro. But I swear we've seen characters like the Bizarro George Washington. So bear with me. We're having Bizarro world with history and Kid Eternity would have fun with that. Very close to mine, actually, because I completely agree about the, um, I'm going to call it the corruption of Kid Eternity. It made him pretty unrecognizable, and I don't think there were any there was any charm in the Morrison uh, or and whoever took it over afterwards and the Senti maybe or something. So I also return to the original, but with a twist. Freddy's power to recall people from history is innate; it's a mutant power, but he never really got to use it. The boat he was on sank during World War II, and he drowns. 
But that's when his powers actually manifest in, in the panic. He releases all kinds of people into the world. Some are good, most are not so good. And at some point, Heaven notices the discrepancies that it's creating on Earth. So they assign Mr. Keeper to take Freddy back to Earth in the contemporary era and Hughes' abilities to corral all the escaped souls back to the afterlife. As the series progresses, we'll discover how these personages survived and adapted to the 20th and 21st centuries, that they might have specialized chat rooms, they might be running <laughs> modern-day empires, or have formed underground movements based on, on philosophies long dead. The series is still fairly light, a bit like yours, with an educational remit that puts history lessons if not in the stories themselves, at least in the back matter. I, I'm thinking like, you know, the style of those old info pages, trivia pages that were part of the comics in, in the Golden yeah. and Silver Ages. Yeah, I, I'd love to have to bring that back in some way, you know. Well, bring it back, resurrect it in the same way that Kid Eternity is resurrecting, you know, different characters. I, I, mean, I think we're close on this one. I think we have a similar opinion on Kid Eternity. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. It would be fun. The last kid on the books, well, he's not the last kid, child or, or teen hero but the last one kid in his name is kid flash or we could just go wally west and we know he's had other identities for me i'm sorry barry allen fans but this is my flash series it's called flash it stars wally west and it resets things pretty much from the end of mark wade's run which i think is where i would pick it up we, we've got you know he's got a family of speedsters around him i think uncle barry has returned from the dead that's fine but the speed force has abandoned him uh, and he's he's hitting 50 he's kind of the commissioner gordon figure helping out from the crime lab the adventure continues with none of the mistakes of the past or the then future like giving wally aged up kids and whatever terrible business happened through the 2000s and 2010s it goes without mention just a solid super speedster book with one of the best supporting casts in comics honestly for me anyways you were a fan of, uh, of that particular flash series as well i love i, I bought it beginning to end and although the the mark wade series with the kids aged up wasn't brilliant i think dc abandoned it too quickly because wally was such a popular character Lind linda was always great and yes yeah i mean the supporting characters you know you had you had all the other speedsters and we okay we hadn't seen much of mary west as his lovely mother for a while but if if you put her in your series that would be an instant buy for me because she was such a brilliant character so i i would love to see a continuation of the you know, the, the Mike Barron, Bill Lerbs, Mark Wade, Wally West series. Superb. Did you go with a kid flash uh, on your own end? Yep, yep. He wasn't he wasn't too grown up in this issue of Who's Who, so I'm, I'm stunting him age-wise a little bit. So I'm thinking of Doctor Who again, and I think, you know, Shagalite is all this Doctor Who talk, but the slogan associated with the series was an adventure in space and time. And that's what Kid Flash's series, a companion to Kid Eternity, would be perhaps reviving the DC Kids imprint for the brother titles. I mean, the thing is, with the, with the Flash around, I and mean, Barry Allen would be around, what's the need for another speedster? I'd let Wally use his ability to go anywhere to have him zoom around space and time, helping young people in need like the original Teen Titans did, but they were all stuck in the one time period. And as around the time of this who's who, he was fighting in the crisis. So that's why Barry gets to be alive still, because, you know, Barry wasn't dead at this point, and I don't know Barry's going to die. So <laughs> Kid Flash is fighting in the crisis, and he soon become the Flash, but this will be a younger Wally for the younger set. What would hopefully make the book a little different is that slotting into different time periods won't be as easy as, say, Superman and Superboy and Supergirl always made it look. Wally isn't immune to ye olde worldy poxes. 
He can't understand all the languages and dialects. That gorgeous maiden he's going in to kiss has terrible breath and bad teeth. Should he just come home to the 20th century? Who knows? Interesting. All right, let's uh, this is let's get into the third act. <laughs> this is the part of the book where the characters are the most difficult to pin down because there are no stars, I don't think. And it starts with a half pager, the king, or I think King Standish uh, was what was always called in the in the original strips. I, I don't know of any strip where they just called him the king as a thing, but who's who did King Standish. Where are you going? I'm going away from those original strips. I read a couple of them. They were very dull. But, I mean, yeah, King Standish, he, he defines Obscure, a little scene here of the Golden Age, Master of Disguise, who let the police believe him a criminal, even as he fought injustice. It's not the most original. But I'd bring him back for a 40 set series called The King and the Witch, in DC's anthology title, Couple Comics, alternating with Hawkman and Hawkwoman, Mr. and Mrs. Dibney, Adam and Lana Strange, and more couples. Like the king, the witch, his main enemy, was an ambiguous figure, and it wouldn't take much to put her on the path of righteousness as the pair solved crimes among the society set. So, as is probably inevitable when we're having couples fighting crime in the 40s, we go for a little bit of a thin man vibe, but hopefully, if we put the right writer on this team on the book, as time went on, they developed their own personalities a little more, but as they'd only be appearing about three times a year, we wouldn't have to stand too much of King Standish. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I really like this idea because I'm a big fan of, you know, superhero couples. I even created one for this particular uh, episode of, of Who's Editing. But we're even closer than, than I would have imagined. I've also taken that mention of the witch in the entry as, as sort of my core. But mine is straight up called King V Witch, I guess it would be the the modern way to put it, the V. I reimagine the characters as 70s black exploitation heroes, or at least he is, with a pimped out extravagant lifestyle. He's disguising himself as unnoticeable people to carry out righteous crimes against rich white a-holes. And then he meets his match, the witch, another disguise artist who got bored scamming rich aristos in Europe and has come to the States to have some fun. She doesn't have any skin in the game. She's just messing up his plans because it's a hoot. Things escalate, and they might even get nasty after they sleep together, both in assumed identities, and they don't realize until later. The city's just not big enough for the both of them. I think the most interesting thing about the entry is that mention of the witch, and both of us picked up on it. Yeah. At the bottom of that page on Who's Who is King Faraday, a bit more of a... A higher profile, but still. So for me, I, I'm, I'm really going off script. Uh, the book is called I Spy, and it's something we don't see anymore. It's a puzzle book. Ooh. There will always be a six to eight page story starring King Faraday or another spy character, including white pantsuit Diana Prince, because I Ching, I Spy, you know, it's a natural. But most of the magazine is filled with puzzles and games, some of which may in fact use the featured story in some way, uh, like find the mistakes or decrypt a code. You know, you can participate. Two other puzzles are recurring features. I Spy is a Where's Waldo type spread where you have to find some DCU bit of business in a crowd scene or a complicated image, like where's the H dial in a crowd of heroes, for example. And the other is a DC-centric maze called Danger Trail after uh, King Faraday's original book. 
then, you know, crosswords, Sudokus, whatever, uh, with DC themes and art, and with King Faraday essentially acting as a host, explaining the games to junior agents, and that's us. I, I had several ideas for King Faraday, but this was the most ridiculous, so that's the one I finally picked. I like that. I love that you revived the Danger Trail name. And wasn't I Spy? Wasn't that the name they put on the book when they reprinted some of his original Danger Trail stories in Showcase? I think so. And I think maybe that that was the name of the strip he was in. Yeah. Yeah. It sounds good. Like King Faraday again. He's, he's to me. He's one of those characters. That I've, he, he, you know, you, you pop up on DC Comics all over the eighties. I'd always get confused with the likes of Sarge Steel, but. I, I mean, it's only about last year that I realised King Faraday was a pun. In fact, it was probably the Who's Who entry that told me that and I'd forgotten. But yeah, a top spy, he has no superpowers. But of course, he has the Olympic level athleticism and that hardly makes him unique in the DCU. But he's seen everything as a member of seemingly every secret government agency going. So he's ready to try something new. Now he's the number one troubleshooter for the Institute of Hypernormal Conflict Studies, aforementioned. And he's in the pay of Mr. Jupiter, training the next generation of superheroes. He's the man Kid Devil and other young heroes go to when they need advice. They all trust him. They really shouldn't. He's actually a Derlin on Earth, recruiting for a 20th century version of the Legion of Supervillains. And what happens after that? They'll have to buy the book. Wow. Yeah, I wonder what else we could have done with King Faraday. I mean, using King for a day as a sort of element... Could have been also interesting, and it could just have been a you know a straight up spy book. I mean, he's got potential. To me, this is a character that should have been British. It feels so much like you know like a Cold War era MI6 kind of vibe with a name like King Faraday. But no, he's an American. So I don't know. I like what you've done, certainly. So what's that, what's next? Uh, Knights of the Galaxy. Uh, actually, the hardest for me. Uh, how did you find it? I found it tough as well. You know, Knights of the Galaxy, the Atomic Knight. It's you know one of those. Very obscure, not very novel 1950s strips, but let's see what we can do. I mean, there were the, there were the stars of a short-lived DC science fiction strip, and I would give them a new run in their original book, Revived, for the second time, Mystery in Space. The mystery is, what happened to Lyle, the number one knight, who vanished on a star quest to retrieve the Gardener Grail? Over 12 issues, we're checking with the various heroes as they search for their friends, traversing worlds of DC, old and new. And if it sells well enough, they'll get an annual showing the other side of the story from, this is going back, 1952's Mystery in Space number eight. And as, of course, you remember Siskoid, that saw the fear lead aura wrangle the original Knights of the Round Table, their minds displaced into their future peers, as the real Knights of the Galaxy battled Merlin in the past. Now, that conflict was happened entirely off-screen and was only mentioned to Aura in passing. Well, I think the readers in 1980s or now have waited long enough and they need to know what happened. So that will be the annual. <laughs> the very famous Knights of the Galaxy story. <laughs> yeah, I, I, you know, I'm not going to lie. Uh, I had so much trouble with this. This is the last one I cracked, I think. I looked at old, you know, the old mystery in space comics to get some inspiration, as obviously you did. And all I wanted to look at was Aura in that red dress from back when Carmine Infantino drew sexy women. So, so while the book is called Knights of the Galaxy, it's really her story. I, I, I can't look at anyone else. They're so generic. So the knights have all died or disappeared or left, and she's forced to recruit a new roundtable of space adventurers. And this time, 
They won't all look like generic white dudes. We can fix this. The writer will be tasked with giving these stories an Arthurian feel, with Aura as Arthur rather than as Guinevere, uh, where science fiction replaces magic, uh, and with winks to Excalibur and the Green Knight and all the popular stories from the lore. That sounds doable. I love it. I love it. I'd actually never noticed the link between Aura and Arthur. They are quite similar. So, yeah, I think you may have cracked it there, sir. We'll see if it sells in our parallel timeline. Next up is Cole. Okay, I've hired Jose Luis Garcia Lopez, praise be his name, to draw Cole. So the rest is kind of of irrelevant, uh, isn't it? (laughs) But seriously, this really needs work. She looks quite fetching, but her story sucks. So the book is called New Princess of Gemworld, and it reimagines Cole as a princess of the House of Diamond. Amethyst has, just like in the comics, she's merged with the planet, and the gem world cries out now for a new champion. We're going to see young girls from every house try to take on the role. Cole is among them, but it will become clear after the first story arc that, that she is it. But we keep the other house champions around as supporting cast, as allies who have something to contribute, and perhaps one or two of them show their true colors and go bad. Surprisingly, Opal is not one of them. She's probably Cole's most loyal friend. So we can reimagine the gem world, you know, in the future. What is the future for gem world after the Amethyst story? That's just fantastic. That is, that is brilliant. I, I know Cole is a tough one. Uh, so what, what did you do with it? Well, I mean, Cole, I, I think I've, I've never read a single Cole story apart from the crisis when she died. And that seemed a nice way to treat her because, I mean, I read after the event that she was created as a teen titan just to die in the crisis. This is a crystal warrior who, as you say, I mean, her visual was amazing. And I would say, you know, the crystal warrior never had a chance to shine. Well, here's her opportunity, but she's no longer the redhead beloved of at least three Teen Titans fans. After an encounter with Eclipso, she emerges from a crystal cocoon as a brilliant black girl, Carbonados, Diamond Defender of Africa. Because there's not a huge amount of diversity in this issue of Who's Who, so... I'd let the new call bring some, and DC really, really needs some heroes on the African continent, and that's where we'd put Cole. Yeah, I, I think that's a totally... I like the idea of the coal diamond connection, blood diamonds that come from Africa. Yeah, conflict diamonds. Yeah. yeah, conflict diamonds. So I, I think you've really, like, uh, you know, you've, you've made a, bit, a nice bow out of it. So, well, here's the not our final book necessarily, but it's the final entry of the book, and he's our last kid as well. Kong the Untamed. Very popular cave boy character. <laughs> <laughs> well, obviously, I'd, I'd make him Kong the Karate. Well, no, I wouldn't, actually. Uh, <laughs> so he's, he's, if anyone you know, can't immediately remember, he's a Cro-Magnon teenager. And there's not a lot to remember Kong. He, Apparently, he began as a reboot of Anthro, the other cave boy, which incidentally is the first DC comic I ever bought as a kid, about 1969 or something. And I would change the story to Kong and the Cave Kids, and I would unite Kong with Anthro himself and Teen Titan Galark, having time tossed into the 20th century by a crisis wave, the very useful crisis waves, and so that it's not an all cave boys club, I'd make up a cave girl, perhaps call her Neander. Also, they don't know, but also sent into the future via the crisis wave was a cave boy from across the valley called, <laughs> I can never pronounce this, Vandaj and Vaj. Anyway, Vandal Savage is a teenager. So will they save the 20th century or will they destroy it? 
I like the cast. I think that's an interesting idea for it. I mean, Anthro was a rather realistic portrayal of the Ice Age. I like that comic. Obviously, I didn't buy it off the stands myself originally, but, you know, the stories that I've read, I like Anthro. I, I like the art of it, and I liked how it was I'm at least grounded in some kind of reality. Um, but Kong the Untamed had people and dinosaurs living side by side, so it's not quite as legitimate. So I leaned into that, and I put Kong not in prehistory, but on Dinosaur Island. Oh! It's a comedy version of Dinosaur Island. Kong was lived there as a baby and was raised by Neanderthals, who he intellectually was able to beat at age 12. The series has a Flintstone-like usage of prehistoric animals. It's got soldiers getting cartoons slaughtered in the background as we cross into the war that time forgot. And Kong is just really good at getting into and out of trouble because he gets bored easily. The art has a fun cartoony feel. It doesn't shy away from the one-page gag strips starring other characters like uh, his friend Gurat, his small pet dinosaur Atu, and uh, what we might call the war that time ignored. This is going to be a, a an amusing book. Now we can add another book from using another entry from, from this comic. And I chose, it's not very original, I guess, but I chose Cobra. Cobra's dead. Long live Cobra. Cobra used to have a title, so I'm bringing it back. But the cult is headed by a lady cobra now, and she's more in touch with the times. She's recruiting through social media. She's using the dark web, designer drugs, etc. Her plans must feel almost too close to reality for comfort. And while part of the series is seeing her schemes, we also focus on certain cultists. I think a comedy double act of long-suffering henchmen is appropriate here, and uh, also an infiltrator and his handlers. That would be basically be the extended version of the Pawn 502 story from Checkmate Volume 2, and with more of a focus on how he has to sabotage Cobra without being uncovered. And he gets quite close to Lady Cobra, so we can follow both without it feeling disjointed in some way. Did you have a, a, a surplus book? I did have one, yes. What I would do, I would get the old JLA villain, The Key, who is just one of the goofiest looking character in history. And I only recently found out that there was a JSA version of the key as well. And I would resurrect him. And because he was a big thorn on the side of the JLA for years, and I would have him go in the opposite direction of Kitana. Just before his Who's Who entry, Zatanna used a magic to reverse an uncomfortable transformation he'd gone through. Basically, he'd been pretty much uh, a dwarf version of himself, but in pain for years, because, you know, obviously there's nothing wrong with being a little person, but he was in a lot of pain all the time. And this show of compassion puts him on the road to reform. So while the key has to go to jail for a while, he uses his mastery of keys while he's there to skip outside his cell at lights out and travel across the DC universe trying to be one of the good guys. Will his good intentions stick as he meets hero after hero, none of whom trust him? Let's find out. I think that's a lot more original than, than what I came up with. Yeah, let's open the door to that series. Uh, finally, well, let's follow the now well-established tradition that states that we have only enough money to buy one series from the other editor's line. Which one will it be? You want to start this, Martin? Well, short of you actually producing that series of Katana with a cricket bat, I'm very, very tempted by your version of Johnny Double because I just love double stories. That just sounds like it has some interesting places to go. But in the end, I'm plumping for 
Caliban loves Callista because it's just such an incredibly wacky idea and two characters with amazing visuals, an interesting romance in there, lots of room for comedy. You could slip in some surprising drama. I would buy that in an instant. That's interesting because I think we're on the same wavelength, even though I, you know, I complimented a number of books that I thought might be my, my front runners. In the end, my favorite there is couple comics, which would star the King and the Witch, but also a lot of other DC couples of note. And like I said, I've got a I've got an interest in that. I love married couples, you know, superhero mar- married couples, uh, couple comics, married with comics. It <laughs> would be my uh, my pick this time. And then I get a lot of variety, you know, not just King Standish, but uh, you know, all those different projector and karate kids. They could be in there too. That's right. That's right. I, I can think of many uh, couples that I- I'd love to see in that book. So. Dear listeners, it's now your time. You can go to fireandwaterpodcast.com and tell us what you think. Would you read any of these books? If you were in charge, what series would you offer using these characters? And if you like this content, please think about visiting our Patreon page as well at patreon.com slash fwpodcasts. I hope you had fun with it, Martin. I really had a lovely time. It was just just such fun and, you know, it's fire the imagination. I just love your ideas. And I loved yours as well. Please tell people where they can uh, read more of your stuff because, uh, like me, you're I think of you as a power blogger. You know, we're still we're still hanging in there, even though it's a dying yeah. medium. <laughs> <laughs> we're still around. So I blog on a site called Too Dangerous for a Girl, Too Dangerous for a Girl, which each of superheroes references everybody knows. Follow me on Twitter at DangerMart. I pop up on the Fire and Water blogs, interrupting everybody around online at various places. You know, I was surprised that you took the take, you know, that you went with uh, nothing before 1985 because you're reading a lot of modern comics. You review them all the time. So I thought maybe you were more up to date on the DC Universe enough that, that you would you know, project more into the future. But I like the retro element of your line. Yeah, I mean, I might I might have gone a little bit more with, with that sort of thing. But just before you invited me onto the show, the Who's, you know, the Who's Who Omnibus came, came out. And just being able to reread all those entries in on paper rather than on screen, because my, my paper copies are down in England somewhere, I'm in Scotland. And just being able to just smell the pages, it, it just threw me right back into the 80s. And I thought... Let's go a little bit 80s. Excellent. Well, thanks for trying the experiment with me. Until next time, who's editing? We are. And with Justice League, I just thought, I want to just do a big old superhero comic the way I think they should be done. Like, huge ideas, imagination. Let's throw out all this stupid dark stuff and the realism of it.